to pray more and pray more effectively. And the disciples apparently felt that way after once again observing Jesus in prayer. We find them asking him to teach them to pray in the 11th chapter of Luke's Gospel, verse 1. And it came about that while he was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Now Luke calls our attention to Jesus' personal prayer life more than any other gospel writer, speaking often of him drawing apart from the crowds to pray or withdrawing even from his disciples for times of private prayer. And on this occasion, he says Jesus was praying in a certain place. Now, he doesn't mention it by name, but the Garden of Gethsemane was between Bethany and Jerusalem. And since it was his custom to go there, it's not unlikely that that is where he was praying. When he finished praying, one of the disciples, perhaps expressing what they had been discussing while observing him in prayer, asked him to teach them to pray, as John the Baptist had taught his disciples to pray. Jesus was more than willing to grant the request, but they may have been a bit disappointed with the instruction he gave. Let's read on. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as, or for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. That was it. Now, they had heard this before. Now, this is simply a condensed version of what he had taught on the Sermon on the Mount some two years earlier. I doubt that they had forgotten what we call the Lord's Prayer. But I think they were looking for more. But Jesus began this teaching on prayer with a simplified version of what he'd already taught them. He didn't make prayer more complex. He made it even simpler. In fact, he gave them a very simple prayer and told them to pray it. Like a parent teaching a child to pray at mealtime by asking them to repeat, God is great, God is good. Or at bedtime, now I lay me down to sleep. I doubt that that's what they were looking for. And I doubt that's what they overheard him praying, but that's what he told them to do. If they would learn to pray. Now, I don't think he was encouraging his disciples to mindlessly repeat the same prayer over and over. 
In fact, when he introduced the model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. We don't gain God's ear by impressing him with the number of our fathers, we repeat, or the length of our prayers. He hears the prayers of his people that are simply and respectfully addressed to him. Jesus here taught us to address our prayers to our Father. And we don't even have to add who art in heaven. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. But by simply beginning with Father on this occasion, I think he was making clear that our prayers don't have to follow a formula in order to be heard. God knows where he is. And so do we. So we don't need to specify that he is our Father in heaven every time we address him. We must, however, show respect to him. No, Jesus had a very intimate relationship with his father, even calling him Abba, the equivalent to our daddy. And Paul taught us that we too can refer to God as Abba. But we can never get so familiar with our father in heaven that we fail to show respect to his name in prayer or in casual conversation. In both prayers, Jesus said, Hallowed be thy name. That means his name is to be held in reverence. It's to be regarded as holy. We must never forget who it is that we are addressing. The first thing Jesus then directed us to mention in our prayers is the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Now, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray for the kingdom to come, he may have been teaching them to pray for something that has now already come. You know, when Jesus began his ministry, he declared that the kingdom of God was at hand. And he told his disciples that some of them would not taste death until they had seen the kingdom of God. In many respects, the church is the kingdom of God on earth. So the kingdom is already here. But that is not to say that we should stop praying for the expansion of that kingdom or for the consummation of the kingdom when Christ returns. Praying for the kingdom keeps us focused on that which is most important on earth and in heaven and that is will of our Father on earth and in heaven. We are then free to come before our Father with our needs, our daily needs. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us to say, give us this day our daily bread. In this prayer, he said, give us each day our daily bread. Asking him to meet our daily needs keeps us dependent upon him every day. And that's the kind of relationship we should be expressing in our prayers. 
And not only are we dependent upon him for our physical sustenance, we're dependent upon him for our spiritual health as well. And that's why we continue to express our faith in his forgiveness by continuing to ask him to forgive us our sins. We never want to get to the place where we forget that he is the one who forgives our sins. And Jesus does call them sins here, not just debts. Our sins and their forgiveness do, however, keep us indebted to God. And recognizing that fact makes us gracious when forgiving those who sin against us, who are indebted to us. Now, the threat inherent in the prayer given in the Sermon on the Mount and made explicit by Jesus In what he said afterwards, for if you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. That's not included in this prayer. Jesus apparently assumed the disciples had by now learned to forgive those who were indebted to them. He ended his prayer by saying, lead us not into temptation. Now, James makes it clear that God tempts no one to sin, but that we are tempted when we get carried away and are enticed by our own lusts. But God does allow us to be tested, as he did Job. We should therefore pray that God help us overcome the temptations that come our way, And that we pass the tests that he might allow. And that we can do. After all, Paul assured us that God would not allow us to be tempted beyond that which we are able to endure. And that he would also provide us with a way to escape. We just have to pray for the strength to take that way of escape. You know, praying that God not lead us into temptation is an expression of our dependence on him and our confidence in his grace and provision. If we would simply pray this little prayer regularly and with understanding, we would have a very effective and vibrant prayer life. But Jesus didn't just give the disciples a prayer to pray. He went on to teach them some very important truths concerning prayer, beginning with a parable that we generally find difficult to understand. Verses 5 through 8. And he said to them, Suppose one of you shall have a friend, And shall go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he shall answer and say, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. 
Now, this parable is hard for us to even visualize until we understand the customs and conditions in Jesus' day. First of all, it wouldn't have been unusual for someone to be traveling during the night, the coolest part of the day. But arriving at your destination in the middle of the night might present a problem. You know, hospitality was an obligation of the highest order. And a guest would always be welcomed with something to eat. If, however, his arrival had been unexpected and preparations had not been made, the host would be in a very awkward position. There were no all-night supermarkets. So the best you could do would be go to a neighbor, especially one you knew had bread because you had smelled it baking that day. The problem, however was that once a family went to bed, it would be a major disturbance to answer the door. Most homes had only one room, and the family slept on a raised platform near the fire. Animals usually filled the space between the family and the door. To answer the door in the middle of the night would therefore disturb everyone and everything. It would be no minor inconvenience. The neighbor responded that he couldn't get up and even said, don't bother me. But the man insisted that he get up. And he kept on knocking. Once everyone was awake, the neighbor opened the door and gave the man the three little loaves that he needed. He didn't do so because he was a good friend. He did so because the man wouldn't give up. He wouldn't go away quietly. Jesus said he got what he needed because of his persistence or shamelessness. The word is open to definition. Perhaps it would be best to say he got what he needed because of his shameless persistence. Well, that's the parable. But what does it teach about prayer? Does it teach that God might be asleep when we come calling and not want to be bothered? But if we make a nuisance of ourselves and shamelessly persist, he will give us what we want? Now, some do read it that way. And they suggest that we should storm the gates of heaven with our demands until they are met. I don't believe that's what Jesus is teaching here. I don't think this is a picture of God's reluctance, but a contrast to it. If a friend will finally respond at an inopportune moment because of a real need and persistent asking, how much more can we be assured that our loving Heavenly Father will respond to our needs? This parable does not paint a negative picture of a reluctant God. It paints a picture of a promise. Let's read on. And I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. Now, suppose one of you fathers is 
asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he has asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, see the contrast there? It's very important. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask, seek, and knock. They're all in the continual tense. We are to confidently keep on asking, seeking, and knocking with the full assurance that God will respond to our need. As long as we have a need, we can keep on asking. That's not meaningless repetition. That's freedom of access. And if our need doesn't appear to have been met immediately, it's not a sign that God doesn't want to be bothered. He's not like the fair-weather friend in the parable. He will give us what we need when the time is right. So we can feel free to keep expressing our need without fear of offending him. Now, an earthly father won't give his son something that is harmful, and neither will our heavenly father, even if we unknowingly ask for it. Sometimes we ask for things that we should not have, and God knows that. And he certainly won't play tricks on us, giving us something bad when we ask for something good. So we should keep on Asking, seeking, and knocking. Knowing that if we rightfully ask, it will be given to us. And if we seek, we will find. And if we knock, it will be opened to us. Now, the, the sequence of asking, seeking, and knocking has been viewed at least a couple of ways. Some see in them a progression, suggesting that we should start by simply asking and then move to actively seeking and then finally resort to knocking. Obviously, that reinforces a picture of reluctance on God's part to hear our prayers and should be, therefore, rejected. A more acceptable view, if there is something more than poetic Repetition here might be a difference in the approach taken by those in differing relationships with God. A child who is at home with his or her father would only need to ask. Someone who has strayed from home might need to seek out his father before he could ask. And someone outside the family would first have to knock and gain admission before being in a position to ask. Be that as it may, Jesus wants us to know we can ask. Confident that we have a Heavenly Father who hears and answers our prayers. 
Now, as Johnny Erickson Tata once said, God is not the big vending machine in the sky. Nor is prayer magic, a way to get what we want from God. I saved an article that was published by Spiritual Counterfeits Project for over 25 years that powerfully makes this last point. I've got copies on the table if you'd like one. It was written by Karen Hoyt in an opinion piece entitled, Is Prayer Magic? She began by writing, A Christian friend said, Three of us prayed together. We confessed our sins. I know our request is God's will, and I'm holding him to his promise. And in faith, claiming the answer right now. I felt uneasy. Is that prayer? Or is it magic? She went on to write, Prayer as magic attempts to manipulate God. If I say the words right, as in chant or a mantra, or if I do that in this order, God must do such and such. The fact is that God doesn't have to do anything at all. He has chosen to do much for us, not because of our magic or goodness, but because of his grace and in spite of our fallenness. Scripture is abused when we use it as a magic formula. God's word is not an incantation to give us power over him. But his word reveals who he is. Prayer is not magic. It is a relationship with God. In an intimate, ongoing relationship of love. Where we may express our adoration of him as a person and our God. It is where we can safely express ourselves in the depth of whom we are, confessing our sins and accepting his forgiveness. Prayer is where we seek God's support in our vulnerability and needs. And lastly, where we ask for his help and encouragement in our lives, relationships, and work by his will and his love for us. To engage in prayer as magic is to reject the autonomous, holy person, God. To engage in prayer as relationship is to be vulnerable and to trust God's goodness and wisdom. It's good stuff. And I believe that's what Jesus one of his disciples to learn about prayer. And that's what he wants us to learn as well. If we feel like we are being ignored in our prayers, not getting what we want, the problem is with us. It's not with God. James got to the bottom of it when he wrote, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Jesus assured us in the Sermon on the Mount that God would give what is good to those who ask. 
And in Luke, he made it clear that that which is good is nothing less than his Holy Spirit. If we would have an effective prayer life, we will pray as Jesus instructed us. And we will ask him to cleanse us from our sins and fill us with his Holy Spirit so we can communicate freely and openly with him, seeking not for our will to be done, but for his will to be done on earth as it is.